0: If you have your scriptures, turn with me to Psalm chapter 16, and we'll get after it this morning in Psalm chapter 16. It is good to be back with you all. Uh, I enjoyed my time out Southway last weekend in Pearland. I heard great things about Jason's message with you, uh, but always good to be back home at FC Cubed. Uh, For whatever reason, I always still get a little bit nervous preaching at other places uh, other than FC Cubed. Uh, I'm waiting for that day when, when, as the poet said, I'll be as calm as a monk on morphine. Okay, uh, but it hasn't hit yet, and so it's good to be it's good to be back at FCQ, my my home church. And uh, there's just nothing like preaching at home. I'm sure all of you know the feeling. <laughs> uh, again, uh, announcements to get started. Make sure uh, you'll stay for the congregational meeting. Also, this Wednesday uh, we'll be having our Christmas Eve service uh, here at 6 p.m. Uh, so a little bit earlier than last year, uh, bring your family, bring your neighbors, bring your friends. This is always one of our more special services here at the church, and so you are invited. Uh, it'll be a candlelight service, and it'll, be, it'll just be super special. So uh, we'll see you there on Christmas Eve uh, as we start our celebration of Christmas. We are in the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is not a celebration of Christmas yet, but it's a period of waiting and anticipation as we um, look forward to the coming of Christ, both his first coming, and the celebration of his first coming uh, in the incarnation and in the, in the Christ child and also the second coming of Christ. We look forward to his advent. Advent means coming, uh, appearance. Christ, God with us, has shown up. Um, and we have been in an advent series called What I Need for Christmas. And so we'll wrap it up, no pun intended, uh, this morning as we look at our fourth big advent theme. We've been looking at things that we need for Christmas uh, think, Wes is not here, so I've got to f- fill my first set of plans <laughs> this morning for him. He, he asked me to make sure that I would <laughs> make sure that it's taken care of. Um, things that we need for Christmas. Christmas time is a, a season where we often think through um, what we want. Uh, and there are lots of things that we want, and, and time where we think through things that we need, and, and sometimes our perceived needs are not our real needs, and so there's some sifting to do between the two of them. And we've been going through the four great Advent themes of love, and hope, and peace, and now this morning, joy. We'll look at joy, the joy that Christ brings us that's only found in Christ. It's fitting that we talk about joy as we talk about Christmas time as we enter into the season of celebrating Christ's coming. Christ's coming, God's coming among us in the form of Christ, has always been associated with joy. In fact, joy has always been an appropriate response to Christ's coming, to him showing up in someone's life. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas stories is found in the Gospel of Luke. So two Gospels give us a Christmas story, Matthew and Luke. And Luke's Gospel is interesting in the Christmas story gives us because he spends a lot of time talking about Um, The inner relationships between Mary and her child, Jesus, and then her uh, cousin and Jesus' cousin, uh, her sister, Elizabeth, uh, and her son, John the Baptist, which I like to call him, Johnny B. Uh, And Johnny B. uh, is in the womb of Elizabeth a few months earlier than Jesus. And they actually meet for the first time. We're not sure how much they knew each other growing up. Probably they met on occasion. Um, But they meet as fetus Friends, I like to call them, okay? In <laughs> Luke's version of the story. And as Luke tells the Christmas story, uh, Elizabeth sees Mary, and all of a sudden the baby inside of Elizabeth starts to freak out. I mean, starts to leap and jump and kick around, and just sure Elizabeth's like, what is going on? And, and as Elizabeth tells the story, she says, My child has leaped with joy uh, in the presence of your child. And so even the fetus, John the Baptist, knows the correct response to being in the presence of Jesus, of God with us. He leaps with joy, um, the first and I think most appropriate reaction of a human being to to Jesus' arrival. Um, Throughout the Gospels, people encounter Jesus and they leave with great joy because of the news that he brings them, um, because of the deliverance and healing that he he gives them. In Luke 2.10, as the angels appear to the shepherds, they say, we have good news of a great joy to bring to you. Christ today is coming. Now at Christmas time, a common mistake that we make is we, we substitute joy. We, instead of looking for joy, which can sometimes be hard work to sift through and to find joy, we substitute it for happiness. And it's a cheap substitution. It's a, a shallow substitution. And so this morning, we want to make sure that um, we're not at this Christmas time looking for happiness, but we're looking for joy. The difference between happiness and joy happiness is uh, an emotion that we receive of well-being and gladness um, based on circumstances around us. So when things are good, we are happy. Um, It's a natural emotion. It's an emotion that we all strive for, that we all seek for. Um, And for obvious reasons, right? It makes us happy. It makes us feel good. We want happiness. We want things to go well for us. The problem is it's a very elusive emotion. Um, It's something that's hard to find. It's something that's fleeting. Christmas time is a time where we try to flood ourselves with happiness, um, this, I think, explains the kind of rampant materialism of our, of our uh, season, of our holiday season right now. Um, we think the right stuff, right, having the right toys, having the right stuff, having the right people around us, this is going to bring us happiness. And every Christmas, for some, we're reminded again that this is not where happiness is found. Um, and in fact, I was reading this week, Christmas time is actually a time where depression rates tend to soar, uh, ironically enough. When um, we should be receiving the joy of Christ coming for various reasons, a lot of people around the, the world feel a great depression at Christmas time. Rather, um, but for lots of different reasons. It might be remembering loved ones that have passed, it might be, again, this hollow feeling of knowing what's giving us joy or, or happiness in the moment will be fleeting, and, and by January 1st, January 6th, January 20th, will be gone. Um, But we want joy. Joy is is not like happiness in that sense. Joy is a state of being. It's an internal way of existing. It's given to us by Christ and Him alone. So this morning I want to look at one of the most beautiful passages I think we have on joy. It's one of my favorite psalms, um, Psalm chapter 16. So if you'll read with me, we'll read Psalm chapter 16 together. It's a psalm of David. And David writes this. Preserve me or protect me. My lot and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Since I was an undergrad, Psalm 16 has always captured my attention and my imagination. I wrote a few papers on it um, as a young Hebrew student. It's a beautiful psalm, the 16th song in God's iPod playlist, his people's worship song book. It's a, a song of protection. He starts out real strong here with this plea, Protect me, save me. I'm taking refuge in you. I'm trying to, to find a hiding place in you. And we don't know why David is saying this. There's an absence of situation here to the psalm. Um, and, and this makes it, I think, more intriguing. We don't know exactly how threatened David was in this situation. Perhaps his life was at stake. Um, it's a, a psalm that invites us to take our troubles into it as well and pray with David. Protect me. Be with me. Preserve me. I, I take refuge in you. I find my my safety, my my dwelling place in you and in you alone. But it's interesting. Unlike what you would expect from this first uh, first verse, protect me for I take refuge in you, um, it's not really a a psalm of plea or protection. So in the psalms, there are lots of psalms where the king comes to God and says, I need your help. Protect me. Things are going bad. I need you to show up and and kill my enemies and do something big in a big way. But this psalm is unusual. It starts like this, protect me, O Lord, um, but then it turns into a praise psalm. It turns into this kind of, it's almost as if David gets distracted. I mean, imagine he's, he's maybe threatened by enemies surrounding in on him. Running away from, from someone who's threatening to take his life. And he says, protect me, O Lord. And then as soon as he offers the petition, his mind starts thinking about the Lord. And all the things the Lord has done for him. And his train of thought wonders. And there's a pattern of protection songs that we get in the psalms. But this psalm doesn't go according to pattern. It trails off and veers in another direction and just dwells on the beautiful mysteries that the Lord has given David. We want to zero in here on verse 11, uh, where David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why is there fullness of joy in God's presence? Well, as Christians we would say it's because God is triune. We always want to bring it back to the Trinity here at FCQ. The the God revealed to Christians is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have joy and there is joy to be found in God because God is a God of joy. God is a God who is surprisingly and deeply content in and of himself for all of eternity. Before anything happened, before anything existed, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had joy. And right now they have joy. And for eternity, they will have joy. There is always joy among the relationships of the Trinity. The Father takes joy in the Son and in the Spirit. And nothing can take away that joy. And the Son receives the joy of the Father and gives it back to the Father and shares it with the Spirit. And the Spirit receives the joy of the Father and the Son and gives it back, shares it back with them. Our God is a God who is unimaginably joyful. He's content, Un- not dependent on circumstances. Um, God does have other emotions throughout the scriptures. God gets angry. God gets sad. It's disappointed. But these are contingent emotions. Even in the midst of changing things, of suffering, our God is a God of joy. There's joy to be found in his presence because he himself is full of joy. The Trinitarian God is the epitome of perfect joy. You get here in verse 11 a, a parallelism. So you have three statements Lined up against each other. And then the reason poets do this is so that you'll compare the parts. Um, and so you have A and B and then A and B and then A and B. And, and, B. and the point is that so we can compare the A's. So that it kind of defines itself. And we can compare the B's. And they kind of explore different avenues of the same thought. And so the psalm says, you've made known to me the path of life. You've revealed it to me. You have made manifest to me where life is found. And then in these parallel lines, will keep exploring the same thought. In your presence... There is fullness of joy. So you've revealed it to me and you've revealed the location. The location is in your presence. That's where life is found. And another way of talking about this life, this path of life, is a fullness of joy. A fullness of joy. Not just a small part, not just a measure, but the fullness of joy. And then even more than in your presence, we'll specify the location. More than just your presence, but at your right hand, right beside you, are pleasures forevermore. Another way of talking about this life, this fullness of joy, is to talk about pleasures that last forever. Eternal pleasures. As Christians, we might be reminded that at God's right hand sits Christ. It might be interesting to read this poem in this way. At your right hand with Christ are pleasures forevermore. The Father has pleasure for all of eternity in his Son. You and I as Christians are placed in Christ We receive the love that God has for his son, as if we were his sons or daughters. We're adopted into the family as it were. And so we, in Christ, are able to receive pleasures forevermore, are able to to experience the fullness of joy, are able to walk in the path of life. Christ came to bring us joy. He came to share the joy that he has had from all of eternity with the Father and with the Spirit. In fact, he says this explicitly in John chapter 15. As he ends his ministry among his disciples, he says, I've said these things to you so that my joy will be in you, will be complete in you. So the joy that I've had from all of eternity would be shared, would be given to you. Now, we'll define joy this morning like this. I'll I'll say it slowly and a couple times because it's a kind of a convoluted sentence. I apologize. I was like, how do we define joy? I'll define joy specifically from this psalm like this. Joy is a deep-seated sense of well-being and an abiding contentment that in Christ we are loved perfectly, protected constantly, and assured of salvation. I'll say it again. Joy is a deep-seated sense of well-being and an abiding contentment that in Christ we are loved perfectly, protected constantly, And assured of salvation. This whole psalm, again, is a protection psalm. He says, Protect me. And then as he starts thinking through all the ways that God has protected for him and has provided for him, he is kind of overwhelmed with delight. He says, "Um, I take refuge in you in verse 5 You're my portion, my chosen portion. You are my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What he's saying here is, is God has organized my life. God has taken care of my situations, my circumstances. Again, he started off in a bad place when he begins the psalm. Protects me. There's something wrong going on in his life. But as he thinks through who his Lord is, he starts thinking through about all the beautiful things God has done to provide for him. You are my portion. You are my lot. You are my cup. The lions have fallen beautifully for me. My life has worked out the way it's supposed to have worked out in your loving and perfect hand. He says I bless the Lord who gives me counsel and the night my heart instructs me. The Lord is before me, and because he's at my right hand I shall not be shaken. He says, I've been protected, I will be protected. I'm content and I have this sense of well being because I know that I am watched over. I know that I am safe. He's also assured of salvation. In verse 9, he says, My my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh will dwell secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield. This is a word for the grave. You will not abandon my soul to to just rot in the ground or let your Holy One see corruption. Um, The psalmist here comes to a remarkable conclusion, particularly for the Old Testament. He, He says, not even death itself is going to keep me away from the Lord who protects me and guides me. My soul will not be abandoned to the grave. My body will not see corruption. This seems to be here one of the earliest um, assurances of resurrection that we have in the scriptures. The psalmist seems to say, I don't know maybe exactly how this works out, but my body itself is not going to corrupt. Death itself will not have the final word in my life. God will see me through even this. Christians see this psalm and and can't hope but see this as a prophecy or as a type of Christ, the Holy One, whose body was not abandoned in the grave, whose soul was not left, but who was raised from the dead. And as Christians, we receive that same promise. The psalmist has joy because he has this deep sense that he's assured of salvation, even at death, even if he were to die in the situation that he's in in which he's crying out for protection. He knows that death itself would not be the last word. Death itself will be conquered by his Lord. And then the whole psalmist is set in this context of a loving relationship that the psalmist finds himself in, where he is assured that he is loved perfectly. Beyond his sins and beyond his doubts and beyond his failures, there's this, this context of relationship that he's in, this covenant relationship that he's found himself in. He uses God's personal name throughout the psalm. He starts off with this, this cry of protection, protect me, oh God, this vague word for God, for when you I to take refuge. But then he starts talking about the Lord. You'll see here, the Lord is in all caps. This is Yahweh, God's personal name. This is the covenant God who comes to Israel and says, here's my name, here's my promises, I will save you. And it's in this context, this relationship, this covenant, that he finds protection and love and assurance. The psalmist is well-loved. He's loved perfectly. And in verse 11 again, he says, You make known to me the path of life. I have been loved and loved well. In your presence I find fullness of joy. I have been loved and I've been loved well. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the joy, the joy that the psalmist finds in God's presence that we need for Christmas. This is the joy that Christ came to share with us. This is the joy that we should fight for during this christmas time and we need to be careful that we don't make this cheap switch to happiness that we don't substitute joy for happiness that we don't settle for happiness <clears throat> happiness is a good thing but happiness is not um, the end game for christians we might look at a couple differences between happiness and between joy happiness is temporary happiness is not eternal happiness is not lasting happiness comes and goes like the rain the seasons. It's not always there for you. Situations will not always work out in your favor. Joy, however, is lasting. Joy is something that can't be taken from you. It's something that remains, something that abides. Happiness is something, as we mentioned, that's dependent on circumstances. So when things go good for you, you are happy. Joy is something that's not dependent on circumstances. This is why it's lasting. This is why it's internal. It's abiding. Again, as we've talked about throughout the series, there are always theological mistakes that we make which brings us to wrong conclusions and wrong behavior Um, and there are lots of theological mistakes that we make when it comes to thinking through happiness and thinking through joy and our pursuit of happiness at christmas time i think one of the things that we're doing is we are pursuing happiness and and we need to as christians make sure that we're pursuing joy there's a belief out there that um, if one is a christian things will always go their way circumstances will always work out in their favor. Um, We might call this a prosperity gospel, right? If if you have enough faith, if you're a good enough Christian, things will work out for you. Thus, if situations are always good for you, you can always be happy because things will always work out for you because you'll always have money in the bank account and you'll always have a nice car to drive and your relationships will always work out the way that you think they should be working out. Now, um, I would venture out to say that this is a theological mistake, um, that the, the story you get in the scriptures is not a story that would make you expect to live a life without suffering, to live a life without um, situations that perhaps don't go your way all the time. Another mistake that we make um, when it comes to happiness is perhaps because we believe things should always go our way and we should be happy, um, we're called to lie as Christians or, or pretend that we're happy when we're not, which I think is a mistake. Um, as a child... I've always been good at this, I think. Um, excuse my crude language, but but have you ever heard of like a BS detector, right? Um, I mean, just, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is FCQ, this is my place. Um, I've just always felt like I've had a pretty good one, right? And, and as, a, since a, as a child, I've always felt like there's something weird about Christians who pretend like their lives are always put together, we talked about this when we went through Lamentations not too long ago. It's a whole book about how awful life is. And it's in the Bible. I mean, there's no, and there's real no, like, high point, right? There's no, like, and life actually ends up turning good. It's just like, no, this is, this is a grieving moment that I'm going through. This is a mourning moment that I'm going through. And our scriptures are full of this. They're psalms, full of laments, full of God's people saying, life is not good right now. And I'm not going to pretend that it's any, any better. There's still joy available, but, but we're honest about our circumstances. The gospel prepares us for our suffering. Mm-hmm. It teaches us to expect it. It teaches us the rewards of our suffering. It tells us to be honest about it. It, perhaps even better, allows us to be honest about the suffering that we are experiencing by the mourning that we are going through. But we have joy even in the midst of suffering at all times, good or bad. Paul, I think, is a perfect example of this. He writes a letter to the Philippians while he's in jail. In circumstances that would not provide happiness. Paul is in jail. He is in prison. And he writes this letter to the Philippians. And it's remarkable for a few reasons. One of which is that its main theme is joy. He tells the Philippians over and over and over again. In all kinds of different ways. To be joyful. To rejoice. To rejoice. To rejoice. He repeats it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. In the space of a very short letter. And Paul himself towards the end of the letter says... I've learned what it means to be content in all situations, whether I have a lot or have a little bit. So I can can be content in all situations through Christ who gives me strength. Paul found the secret of contentment. He found this joy that Christ came to bring. He cultivated this joy. I love the fact that Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content. um, Because it's not something that comes naturally to Paul. Joy is not an inclination. Some people are naturally happier than other people. I don't tend to be just the happiest person in the world. I can't be happy, but this is not my 100% predisposition. I can also be cranky, and I can also be moody, and I can also be cynical. So it's good news to me that joy is not just based on my natural inclinations. Joy is something I can learn, I can cultivate. Joy is a gift given to me from the Lord. It might be an interesting um, exercise to think through what's the opposite of joy, so if the opposite of happiness is sorrow, or despair, or grief, or mourning, what's the opposite of joy? We might say the opposite of joy is not sorrow, right? It's not dependent on our circumstances. Even in sorrow, we can have joy. We can have this deep sense of well-being, contentment in Christ, so we are loved perfectly, protected always, and assured of salvation. What's the opposite of joy? One author writes, the opposite of joy is unbelief. You don't believe that you're well protected, that you're loved perfectly, that you're assured of salvation. Um, one author went so far as to say the opposite of joy is sin. Paul commands us in Philippians, rejoice, period. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. To not rejoice would be to go against the commands of scripture. We might think through different, different things that are the opposite of joy. Um, I asked the question to a few friends and, and asked it online last night and looked through some different responses. And it's interesting to see through what you say the opposite of joy is oftentimes um, tells you a lot about your definition of joy. What you think joy is and where you think joy is found. Uh, a student, I put it on Twitter, what's the opposite of joy? And a student tweeted me back, unjoy. Brilliant. And he, now, he was just being obnoxious, right? But, but I thought there was some truth to that. Um, there's this sense when you learn other languages, what you find out is there are words that are not translated well into English, Mm -hmm. that there are no English word for. And in other languages, and we do the same in our language, but it just doesn't, we're not aware of it because it's our language. Um, some languages make up words for things that don't exist in other languages, right? Um, so there are German words that are kind of made up words, right? There are no English translations. There was not a word for this. And instead of coming up with like six or seven adjectives to describe it, they just created a word for it. And I thought maybe we should do the same. Unjoy. (laughs) What's the opposite of joy? It's it's not joy. It's unjoy. But we're called to rejoice, to have joy. And so like we've done every week, um, I'll I'll close with some Advent adventures. Um, Some ways that we might cultivate specifically this morning joy in our lives. We might learn like Paul to experience more and more joy. To know that we are Well-loved, well-protected, and assured of ultimate salvation. So I've got four this morning. Um, We won't take too long. We'll run through them. The first one is this. The first way we might perhaps cultivate joy, especially during this busy time of the year, is to evaluate, to evaluate our lives. What is your joy factor? How much joy do you have? Where are you receiving joy? Do you substitute joy for happiness? Or do you have this deep sense of contentment that sustains you through good times and through bad times? This is a a personal question that that you might ask yourself um, this week or this evening. The second one is to meditate, to think through the truths that the psalmist presents to us, that the scriptures present to us, of how well we are loved, of the true things about us when we are in Christ. We are chosen, we are loved, we are his, we are new, we are washed, we are forgiven. We are empowered by the Spirit. Think through these things. Your, your joy will never outrun your faith. Joy requires trust. Faith that these things are true. This is why maybe an opposite of joy would be unbelief. If you don't think that God loves you perfectly, it's going to be hard to have the kind of joy that comes through knowing that God loves you perfectly. If you don't think that you're protected, always, it will be hard to have the kind of joy that comes from knowing that you're always protected. Joseph finds out that his wife is pregnant, as well as the knowledge that it is not his. It's got to be a tough situation to find yourself in. An angel shows up and what you have to imagine is a very convincing dream and tells him, she's not lying, she's not two-timing you, Um, this is actually the Holy Spirit's son. You know, there are rumors, so the first century Jews were not stupid people, right? They knew basic biology, Man and a woman equal child. Um, Joseph is not like we sometimes think like this primitive Neanderthal, right? Like, oh, God's child, whatever, yeah. No, I mean, he's, this is a serious thing. You're pregnant? Okay, right? He's thinking about calling it off. Um, but the angel shows up and says, no, this is, this is the Holy Spirit's child. This is God's son. No pressure, right? You're, you're going to raise God's son up here. And Joseph decides to um, be faithful to Mary, decides to raise up this son. And the angel says it's, it's news of great joy. How can Joseph have joy in this, this situation? Well, it's only if he believes the good news. It's only if he believes the angel. If he does not believe, he does not exercise trust and faith that this is what the Holy Spirit has done in his wife and this is who his son is, and he's not going to experience joy. We're told as Christians to imitate Christ, who in Hebrews, we're told, endured the cross because of the joy set before him. The joy of accomplishing salvation for you and I and bring us into the trying God's joy. Inasmuch though, as Jesus did not trust that that was what was going on on the cross, he would not have been able to endure. Since he trusted, though, since he exercised faith, since he knew what was happening, he was able to experience joy even in the midst of his sufferings, able to endure for the joy set before him. It's only as much as we believe that we trust that that we'll be able to have joy. So perhaps this week we make time, we create space to meditate on the truths of who Christ is and what he's done for us. The third Advent adventure for this week is to remember. To remember um, the times in our lives we have felt God's love for us, we've experienced it. Or to remember the times in our lives where God has provided for us and protected us. I think storytelling for Christians is one of the most powerful ways that we cultivate these adamant themes we've talked about, love and hope and peace and joy. It's as we tell stories about um, the Israelites, the way God provided for them, and as we tell stories about the Christ child and his birth and the way God provided for us through him and through his life, as we tell stories about our own lives, with our families and with our friends, the way God has provided for us and protected us, the ways we have been loved and felt and experienced that love. It's through those acts of remembering and storytelling that our joy and our hope and our peace and our love are cultivated more and more and more. So perhaps this week we take time to remember. And then the last one, um, our last avid adventure for cultivating joy <coughs> is to herald joy. Um, to, again, like we've, we've done with all of our, our Advent themes, turn it outward focused. Make Christmas not a time about us, but a time about serving, a time about going out into the world around us. Um, embody God's joy to somebody else. Bring God's joy into the life of somebody else. Perhaps this is through a conversation you have with them, encouraging them. Perhaps it's through a prayer that you pray with them or pray over them. Perhaps this is through meeting a tangible need in their life, acting out God's love and God's providence for them, embodying it for them. Um, scientists have told us for a long time that if you pursue happiness, it's a hard thing to attain. Um, And there's a huge college industry around finding happiness. Self-help books and happiness is here, happiness is here, happiness is here. And it's it's this elusive thing, you can't always find it. But science has nailed down one thing, that there is almost one place where you can almost certainly find happiness. We might say um, joy is is what's being found here. And that's why it's always there. That's why it's constantly there. Um, But scientists will say um, volunteering or serving lights up the pleasure centers in your brain the same way drugs do, the same way sex does. Um, In fact, it lights up brighter when you give away things than when you get things. There's this kind of um, biological wiring to human beings to serve and to find pleasure in serving. Almost as if we were created that way. Almost as if the God in whose image we were created after is a God who serves and gives of himself. And so as we embody joy to other people, as we bring joy to other people, I think we'll find that joy is cultivated in our own lives. You and I, in Christ, have a deep-seated sense of well-being. We should have an abiding contentment through all situations that we are perfectly loved, protected always, and assured of salvation. And that is what we need for Christmas. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your protection and and your providence in our lives. We thank you.